Welcome to BDO Canada's cross-border podcast series. In this episode eight of the series, we're discussing customs and global tax trends. My name is Brian Morcom and I lead BDO Canada's National Indirect Tax Practice. In the past few years, the trade environment has undergone a remarkable transformation. We've seen surtaxes imposed and then withdrawn, new and updated trade agreements, all leading to a shift in traditional approaches to supply chain structures. For businesses trying to adapt and pivot to these changes, it has been challenging to say the least. So what does all of this mean for those navigating these import-export waters? How do these changes impact Canada's approach to immigration? And what tax trends are emerging from all of this change? These are the challenging questions being put to today's panel. Joining me today is Charmaine Guderis, who leads BDO Canada's Customs and International Trade Services team, Doreen Buxner of BDO Canada's Immigration Services team, and Hedel Katecha, international tax partner and leader of BDO Canada's Transaction Services team in Toronto. Charmaine, let's kick it off with your thoughts on customs and international trade. Any more steel and aluminum disputes uh, on the horizon for Canadian businesses? You know, Brian, my customs consulting career was pretty boring up until January 2017. For the most part, goods crossed our borders duty-free. Our relationship with the United States was not unlike the closeness of a family. However, that all changed in a change in leadership in the United States, the Trump administration. So for the first time that that I can remember, and I've been doing this 20 plus years, there was a a trade dispute between Canada and the U.S. over uh, aluminum and and steel. So what we saw happening is movement of of those types of products and and some other weird products like coffee and and pens and and mattresses were attracting uh, 25% or or 10% punitive duties. And the idea was the U.S. had implemented these uh, punitive surtaxes for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, the NAFTA negotiations had broke down. And and two, uh, the U.S. was really trying to take a stance of, of U.S. first and protect all types of industries. And of course, steel and aluminum being one of the uh, the most important ones. So that dispute settled down, uh, but we saw it ramp back up at the end of 2020. Um, But Canada, of course, came back and said, you know what, if you're going to put retaliatory or if you're going to put surtaxes on our goods, we're going to implement retaliatory uh, measures. The U.S. backed away. Um, but what they did say is we're going to monitor what you're doing, Canada, and, and we don't want you, we call dumping your uh, aluminum into our country and, and hurting our uh, steel and aluminum industry. So the, the note there, the reminder there is the trade landscape has been forever changed and punitive duties are certainly one of the, the hammers that um, are, are being used to to make things go um, a, a particular country's way, not unlike siblings battling over toys. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying there. And as a result of of all the surtaxes and uh, that were imposed during that period, are, are you seeing changes in the way companies are structuring their supply chains uh, to adopt a, you know alternate product sourcing, as you're referring to earlier? 
Well, that's really interesting, Brian, because it, it not so much because of the steel and aluminum uh, punitive surtaxes back and forth. We're certainly seeing changes to uh, supply chains to mitigate exposure to Trump's Chinese tariffs. So for, for the most part, most products of Chinese origin uh, in the United States are, you know, attracting an additional 10 percent again or 25 percent. We like those numbers. Uh, punitive, <laughs> punitive duties. So what our, our manufacturers or our, our clients, companies around the world are going, how can we best take advantage of free trade agreements that Canada has with U.S. and Mexico? Oh, what happens if we start doing manufacturing in Canada, turn it into a Canadian product? use uh, CUSMA or USMCA, which was the replacement for the, for the NAFTA um, in, in July of, of last year. And let's see. So it's great for our Canadian manufacturers that, you know, in, in the COVID times, we're always looking for ways to bulk up, uh, you know, revenue or expand our business. And this is certainly something that we're, we're seeing here in, in Canada and, and great for, for our Canadian companies. Yeah, fair enough. And it's interesting, right? Because um, arguably, COVID really overshadowed the introduction of, of CUSMA. Like it, it went from being front and center in a lot of discussions and planning to all of a sudden it came and went on July 1 of last year. And, and people were sort of half paying attention because, of course, there was weird activity at the border. Um, maybe you can talk to everybody a little bit about CUSMA and also other more lucrative uh, or not more, but just very lucrative trade agreements that exist globally. You know, it, it, it's funny, not funny, but COVID did overshadow. And what ended up happening is the ratification process or the signing of the, the formal uh, CUSMA, Canada, US, Mexico agreement, you know, kind of slid through parliament um, in March of, of 2020 and, and no one really, because we were in the middle of uh, figuring out how we were going to address the uh, the COVID emergency. So you're right, there, there was not a lot of attention placed on it or it very quickly fell off the, the radar of, of many people, but it's here on July 1st, 2020, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or we all remembered as NAFTA, was replaced with the 21st Century Trade agreement, CUSMA or USMCA. So in Canada, it's referred to as CUSMA, Canada-US-Mexico agreement. We put ourselves first. In the United States, it's referred to as USMCA, United States-Mexico agreement, and TMAC uh, in Mexico. And I don't speak Spanish, Brian, yet. I'm trying, but I, I, I don't speak Spanish yet. So let's just go with, with Nobody's TMAC. perfect, Charmaine. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> So there are many similarities uh, between NAFTA and, and the new CUSMA agreement, uh, but there's also some big changes. And that's the, the word of caution there for everyone. NAFTA is just not a, a reef or CUSMA is not just a revamp of NAFTA. The NAFTA agreement was 741 pages long. The new CUSMA agreement is over 1,500 pages. That's not some minor tweaks. Um, specifically in the automotive industry, uh, the original Material, uh, material threshold has changed. They added in labor value content. So you have to have workers making $16 US or more that are making automotive parts to go into finished vehicles. Uh, there was the addition of a requirement 
originating steel and aluminum content of 75 plus or more. So a lot of the rules have stayed the same, but a lot of them have changed. So you really have to, our, our companies who are taking advantage of CUSMA really need to, to take a look at whether or not their product now qualifies under the, the new agreement, because the last thing you want is a surprise duty bill uh, for you or your customers. There's also some other exciting free trade agreements, and, and this is why Canada is, is becoming a favorable uh, country to start up manufacturing. We look at the, the agreements between Canada and the UK or Canada and the rest of Europe. Uh, there's our participation in the CPTPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the, you know, the Asian-Canadian uh, Alliance. Um, so, so lots of lots of good things, but remember, it's it's privilege to use a free trade agreement, um, and, and you have to play by the rules and, and meet the rules. So, sit down, take a look at the new agreement, and, and make sure that, that there's no surprises. Yeah, so I know we're seeing this with a lot of um, a lot of businesses that we're assisting. Where you know, for example, you know, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement (CETA) with uh, the European countries isn't being employed effectively. It, it's so much change in such a short window. Um, it, it's very challenging for everybody to stay on top of it. Um, now, do you have any predictions on what we should expect to see in terms of trade relations over the next eighteen months, say, between Canada and the United States? So what we're seeing, uh, Brian, you know, we wanted a, a little bit of uh, a, not a quiet period, but a reflection period about what had happened in 2017 to 2020 and, and get a feeling for how the Biden administration was going to play on the international trade uh, space. And what we're finding is the U.S. plans to maintain their U.S. first approach to trade um, relationship between Canada and the United States are cordial right now, but certainly nowhere uh, near the, the friendliness or the, the family relationship type feelings that we saw pre-2017. Uh, U.S. trade has a new uh, representative, Catherine Tai. Uh, Catherine was instrumental in the CUSMA, the hard-nosed CUSMA negotiations, and she also oversaw the trade enforcement um, uh, of Chinese goods under the Obama administration. So, in short, um, it's going to be a little bit of, of status quo uh, for the next little while. And, and our importers and exporters really need to be mindful that things could change at the drop of a hat and they need to have contingency plans in place because, you know, $600,000 duty bills, like one of my clients saw back in, in July of 2018, that can destroy a, a business or eat away certainly at any at any revenue so you know I, be I, couldn't, mindful. I couldn't agree with you more I mean you know all of this underscores the importance of understanding the trade opportunities that exist for businesses um, seems to me that there's a lot of good money being wasted simply because companies don't know their options so so thank you very much uh, some some very in, interesting inputs very valuable input um, and and folks this doesn't just apply to goods uh, Doreen Buxner's here to um, uh, help us shift our focus to people and the cross-border issues that uh, um, that she can help businesses resolve. Now, Doreen, uh, how do the recent negotiations of the customer trade agreement Charmaine was just discussing impact immigration policy? Thanks, Brian. So actually, it turns out that 
all of these negotiations have been keeping Charmaine so busy with all these changes. It's been relatively quiet on our side and basically status quo since the NAFTA came into effect. None of these negotiations actually had any impact. I guess they didn't make it all the way over to Chapter 1603 while they were so busy managing all of the new tariffs coming into play. But basically, just to provide a little bit of background, um, the KUSMA, or what we knew as the NAFTA, acts as the legal foundation for member states and their citizens to access the Canadian labor market. So citizens of Mexico and the U.S. can have facilitated entry either as business visitors, as intercompany transferees, or as professionals into Canada. And it really helps to bypass a lot of the red tape, a lot of the harder work permit requirements, including labor certification process processes that are required under some of the other categories. So what this really means is that these member states can almost show up at our borders under non-COVID times, present a work permit application and get adjudicated on the spot and get a three-year work permit with pretty little um, investment and, and complications. So it, it's a really flexible and reliable strategy to obtain that work permit. And it can even act as a pathway into permanent residence, especially for entrepreneurs and for investors. So, so what you're saying is you shouldn't show up at the border and say to the Customs Guard, you're just coming in to visit your cousin Jenny. Um, you should just, frankly, present it for what it is that you're coming up to do your work because you won't, you won't get stopped at the border. Okay, that's good. Uh, so taking those thoughts a step further, Doreen, um, we've seen borders closed now for some time. Um, has the pandemic affected immigration policies under Kuzma? Well, I mean, we we don't want to say that the borders have been closed. I like to say that they've been restricted, and that's because they're restricting access for essential and for urgent travel, which means that workers who have a work permit are, by definition, or at least by policy, let's say, under these COVID rules, considered to be essential. So they're not entirely closed. But... The KUSMA and um, citizens who are making applications under the KUSMA are actually basically unaffected by any of these COVID rules, particularly American citizens. They are the only citizens globally who are still permitted to make those applications directly at the port of entry, whether they're at the land border crossings or at airports, and still get their work permits on the spot. Mexican nationals, as well as all the other visa exempt nationals globally, are actually are now required to make their applications in advance at a visa office. So for those nationals, yes, COVID has definitely changed the speed at which companies and professionals can get their work permits or even get their work permits at all if there isn't a sense of urgency or essentialness to that work. So a word of warning and of planning is that any employer who's seeking to send a worker into Canada, try to plan as much as possible and get all that information ahead of time so that you can really build in those runways and, and lead times to make sure that your people can be in the right place at the right time in Canada. So what we're also seeing is that Americans, even if they are allowed to work in Canada. They're still being put through the ringers at the ports of entry. They are being assessed for the urgency of their travel, whether they have ongoing employment in Canada, 
and that they are essential workers going to an essential workplace on an urgent basis. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, when you when you you think about it, all the planning that needs to go into uh, that process the cost to a business of not being prepared and having its people held up at the border and not being able to fulfill services to customers, et cetera, simply by virtue of not having these points around urgency and other matters sorted out in advance is, is significant, clearly. So, so once we're through these pandemic restrictions, what do you envision for the future of Kuzma and immigration? Well, frankly, I, I think that there's quite a bit of room for some modernization, particularly with IT sector professionals. Right now, we're quite limited, even though there are 63 professionals ranging from business activities to scientific professions. But I think that the IT sector has been a little bit neglected. Um, so I would like to see some modernization of those professionals specifically. Um, and I'd also like to see some more permanent residence options coming available through Kuzma. Um, opportunities. So focusing on investment, um, I, I really think that that's also going to help to re-inject some quick funds into the economy as part of Canada's post-COVID recovery strategy. So knowing that Biden is in, the, in, in office right now, I'm really hopeful that they can have some productive and mutually beneficial discussions around the mobility chapter of Kusma and make sure that each country's workforce and labor forces can have access to each country and improve and help to collaboratively improve labor relations and economic conditions as part of the post-COVID recovery. That's a good vision. I like that vision. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, in that vein, now I threw this question at Charmaine as well. Uh, curious your thoughts on it, as, uh, you know, in terms of the immigration considerations and mobility provisions. What are your thoughts on how mobility provisions apply to other agreements such as CETA? Well, we're really happy to have the CETA in place. And now, as, as Charmaine mentioned, we have the UK agreement as well. It's in effect as of April 1st. We're just waiting on some of those details to hit the mobility chapter and see what we're actually working with um, for the professionals and, and probably intercompany transferees as well. But we are seeing a big trend in bilateral or regional free trade agreements, and it's giving amazing access to Canadian businesses globally, as well as for international companies to expand their operations into the Canadian market. And again, bypassing those labor certifications and all that red tape to make sure that their people can get into Canada fairly smoothly. It's It's been a really good um, and helpful pathway for companies to set up new businesses and, and grow through the through into the Canadian economy. So um, I'm really happy to see it. We've been leveraging the Kusma, of course, um, and we also have similar provisions with countries like Korea and Colombia, Peru and Chile. Um, what I'd really like to see is something with India. I believe that that's been in the works for many, many years, and I think that that would be a huge landmark if we can do that as a, as a milestone in free trade agreements, particularly on the labor side. So those are my my wishes uh, going forward for any kind of free trade agreement um, and mobility opportunities into Canada. 
Doreen Buxner, thank you very much. You know, people in borders can be a big black hole. Um, you have a great way of categorizing and resolving the complicated questions. Uh, I really, really appreciate your thoughts and input today, your vision and ideas. Uh, in the last segment of this podcast, we want to tie these ideas together and talk about tax trends. The global tax environment has undergone significant change in the past few years with the advent of U.S. tax reform, base erosion profit shifting, and countries adopting carbon reduction and, and green initiatives. Heddle, as a partner that is heavily engaged in international tax matters and multinational transactions, can you touch on some key trends that you see emerging? Thanks, Brian. A pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, Canada has not had a federal budget for almost two years. Our next federal budget will be tabled on April 19th. The Canadian government's inability to table a budget and the immediate focus on implementing COVID-19 measures designed to support businesses and individuals has resulted in delays in implementing uh, Canada Canadian international tax reforms. Uh, that being said, a number of global trends in taxation have emerged, which some of my colleagues have discussed in previous podcasts, such as the new sales tax reforms and adoption of BEPS measures, etc. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the enormous health and social toll, is, is expected to result in one of the steepest economic declines since World War II. It's unquestionable that tax policy changes will play an important role in building a more resilient and stable economy. However, there is a delicate balance. Any tax legislation designed to increase tax revenues uh, and pay for fiscal stimulus and repay national debt must take a balanced approach to driving economic growth. In recent months, uh, we have seen two major countries uh, increase of proposed tax rate increases. For example, the UK has already confirmed an increase in the corporate tax rate from 19% to 25% with effect from April 1st, 2023. Uh, the Biden administration has also recently proposed increasing the federal uh, tax rate from 21% to 28%, which is sort of a re reversal of some of Trump's policies, uh, along with a host of other measures, such as minimum book tax, reform of certain international measures that will all have an impact of increasing the effective tax rate. It's just, it is conceivable that other major countries, including Canada, may look to do the same. For example, Canada could could include could uh, increase the the tax rate or the effective tax rate in Canada by inclu increasing the inclusion rate on capital gains. In addition, the Liberal government has also proposed uh, limiting the way interest is taxed or deductible in Canada. For example, there is a proposed limit to to, to limit interest deductibility based on 30% of EBITDA, uh, based based on various exceptions and other criteria. I also want to touch on some things on global supply chain. Uh, as previously mentioned, um, um, an important change playing out in numerous countries around the world is increasing pressure to onshore global supply chains, thereby reducing globalization and potentially increasing the opportunities for trade disputes. Recent U.S. tax and trade practices are prime examples of this. Even under the Biden tax proposals, there are a number of measures to encourage domestication of manufacturing through various incentives, these include a manufacturing community, communities tax credit that promotes revitalization, renovating and modernizing existing and recently closed facilities, and expanded credits that turbocharge growth in domestic manufacturing. Proposals also include providing a 10% advanceable credit to companies that make an investment in domestic manufacturing by uh, revitalizing closed factories, retooling existing factories, onshoring production to the U.S., or increasing uh, manufacturing wages. Other measures include the creation of an opportunity zones for economic distress areas within the U.S. and other targeted measures. Uh, we don't see much evidence of this in similar, uh, similar countries such as the EU, and, and they don't really have a main EU concept. That being said, the EU is evaluating uh, the merits of a carbon border adjustment tax uh, designed to act like a tariff on non-EU manufactured goods 
that come with a higher carbon footprint. While this primarily achieves an environmental objective, uh, it may also encourage foreign manufacturers to realign some of their uh, global manufacturing options, options to be close to their market. It's unclear if Canada will consider similar measures, Brian. An interesting point about the cost of carbon impacting uh, supply chain structures. It's not dissimilar from Charmaine's comments about the cost of surtaxes forcing evaluations of purchasing, manufacturing, and, and selling models. And it actually taking that even a step further, hearing your comments about how um, you know manufacturing wages are, are going up, how that works its way into you know CUSMA and, and making sure that we meet uh, country of origin requirements. Very interesting stuff. So along those same lines. What are some global trends you've seen in response to governments encouraging more investment in the green economy? Sure. Thanks, Brian. As you may be aware, global tax reform is being significantly influenced by an increasing social and environmental consciousness, uh, commonly referred to as the Green New Deal. Governments are designing tax policies that encourage companies to invest in cleaner technologies and products and services that reduce the environmental risk and minimize pollution and resource use. While such trends were already taking place before COVID-19, many governments aspire to a green-led economic recovery, which would entail spending fiscal stimulus on renewable energy and other clean technologies to create jobs while addressing climate change. To support a post-pandemic recovery, it's undeniable that many countries will tie the provision of state aid and other tax benefits, at least to some degree, to expanding renewable energy and other clean technologies. For example, take the case of France which recently announced plans to spend 100 billion euros uh, with more than one third targeted to promote green energy policies. Governments will also impose punitive taxes that discourage carbon emissions. While such tax policies will be put in place to encourage certain social and, uh, social and other behavioral changes, it is also expected that such measures will have the intended impact of increasing tax revenues. From a tax policy perspective, several trends are emerging in response to the Green New Deals. These include increased pressure to remove subsidies for fossil fuels, uh, increased pressure to remove um, calls for a more robust tax on carbon, and greater emphasis on more regionally focused supply chains. Multinational corporations need to be aware of these changes so they can better plan uh, to meet their climate commitments and understand how demands placed on them could increase environmental regulation and green-based taxation could impact their business model. As previously mentioned, one of the themes from the global pandemic has been supply chain disruption. Even before COVID-19, restructuring of global supply chains uh, was underway, and some of this was prompted by the trade discussion that we previously had. Non-tax and non-commercial factors, such as the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement, together with increasing environmental regulations, were compelling multinational enterprises to move towards close-to-source supply chain arrangements. One fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in many multinational companies identifying critical weaknesses in their supply chains, causing them to reevaluate their current business models and, in some cases, reevaluate their international structures. While it's certainly true that increased environmental regulation was encouraging these multinational companies to bring uh, products and services closer to the end customer, tax policy decisions were pre both pre and post COVID have also encouraged more regional domestication. For example, uh, in response to COVID-19. Japan earmarked $2.2 billion of its economic stimulus package to help manufacturing companies shift production out of China uh, due to the COVID-19 uh, disruption. Uh, several governments have also adopted unilateral measures to encourage domestication uh, of supply chains. Uh, a good example of this is U.S. tax measures re requiring, uh, for such as guilty and other measures. These provisions were designed to encourage the shifting of income outside the U.S., 
historically, but based on these new U.S. tax reforms, they encourage U.S. multinationals to onshore uh, supply chains closer to the market. Now, as a final concluding comment, uh, reorganization or onshoring of supply chains to meet environmental and other commercial commitments raise several interesting tax issues. For example, multinationals will need to consider what business processes and functions are moved, including people, along with implications for intellectual property, patent protection, and overall taxation of profits. Thanks, Heddle. Uh, many businesses just aren't giving consideration to these costs as part of their planning and decision-making. Uh, if, if there is one takeaway from your comments and Doreen and Charmaine's comments, it, it's the old adage that analysis prevention is worth the pound of cure here, I think. Um, so, so whether you're faced with the movement of goods over borders, people between countries, or the cost of taxation as you endeavor on your international journey, make sure you have a solid strategy. You want global policy to work in concert with your business to minimize costs and remain competitive. Charmaine, Doreen, Heddle, thank you for your ideas on how to do just that. If you haven't already done so, subscribe and tune in to the full cross-border podcast suite and hear more on BEPS and related digital tax challenges, managing your workforce during COVID and much more. I'm Brian Morcom coming to you from the shores of Dorset, Ontario, Canada. Stay well, everyone.